You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This is uh, Father James Scholl, and I want to continue our discussion and our reading of Thomas Aquinas' Treatise on the Law. This is the 18th in our series, and the second in the discussion about the law. The first one, I really didn't give back too much to the definition of the law, and I should like to start with that. Question 90, Article 1, the question, or the general question of, of one is, what is the law? And... Um, the first thing that St. Thomas had said as a precondition is the law is an external principle of action, which means that the specific thing that you do, the particular thing, say drive 25 miles an hour, is a positive law. It is outside of us. We do not set it up, but we observe it. So it's an external to us. And yet, when we observe it, it's internal to us. That is to say, it is the law. It is the rule, the measure of our action. And so St. Thomas said there, uh, the definition of law is that it's in four parts. It's an ordination of reason for the common good by the proper authority, and it is promulgated. Now, that's a simple enough definition, but it's very profound. And one of the things you want to notice is that it does not say anything about coercion. That is to say that law, very often in modern times, you'll say, well, a law is a law only if it has some coercion connected with it. St. Thomas brings up the question of coercion, as we will see. But it is not part of the definition. So the essence of the law is reason, not coercion. Now, as I said, that he asked the question, what is the law? And then he will give you uh, objections to this. The most important objection in all of political philosophy in a certain sense is the objection number three to the first question, whether the, whether the law is an ordination of reason. So St. Thomas is examining that question and giving the arguments against that. And the third argument is that law is not a principle of reason, but it's a principle of will. And he quotes in that the Roman, the Roman law, the famous quote of the Roman law, which says that whatever the will of the prince or whatever the prince wills is the law. So whenever you, there are two kinds of law theories, there's a law theory based on will and there's a law theory based upon reason. When you have a law theory based upon will, it means the will of the lawmaker, that is to say, whether it be a democracy, an aristocracy, a monarchy, or a tyranny, whatever it happens to be, it's whatever the, the, the maker of the law wills that becomes the law. So if you want to find out what the law is, you go find out what he has willed. But you don't ask the question, is it just or unjust? Because by definition, whatever he wills is the law. And so you don't have a system whereby all you can do is say, well, it, it contradicts some or some higher authority uh, is, is against the higher authority, but you can't say it is not a law. 
Whereas if you have a reason theory of law, that lo the essence of the law is reason, not will, uh, then you have a, um, uh, a statement of reason why this is the case. And therefore it is a statement, it is a, um, it is a measure of our actions. So the law is an external principle and it measures our actions. So take the case of driving a car. You're driving a car and it says the law says 25 miles an hour. The 25 miles an hour is the particular thing that measures your action. The general law is that you're supposed to drive safely. If 25 miles an hour isn't safe, you don't drive that. But generally speaking, it is safe and that's a norm you're looking for because you're not sure what's too fast and what's too slow. What you are sure is that you don't want to injure yourself or somebody else and therefore you want, don't want to do something as dangerous or that would threaten something. So, so the first principle of law is that the law is a measure of reason. It is a statement of reason. And that's its formal cause. That's its understanding. Um, and the next section of it is that it is for, for what purpose? The purpose of the law is that, there, that the common good be achieved. So what is the purpose of, say, a driving law? The purpose of driving law is that we don't kill too many people or injure too many people uh, or make it impossible for people to move around and so forth because of a lack of rule or lack of order. And so the common good, the good of everybody, so the law is designed in order that that which is in everybody may be possible. So it is designed to make it possible for all people to do what they need to do. And the common good, therefore, is the good whereby each person's good is, comes out of his actions. So that the law is for the common good, not for the particular good of someone. It is not intended for the good of Joe Blow and so forth. It is for the good of Joe Blow because he is driving 25 miles an hour like everybody else. But it's not for him alone that the law is made. It's made for everybody who's in this condition, who's driving a car, say, example, or doing certain things which are under the law. So the, that's what is called the, the final cause. The, the efficient cause, the, the reason why it's given, the final cause is in this purpose. And who puts it into effect? Well, that's what's called the efficient cause. The efficient cause. And St. Thomas says that is the proper or legitimate authority. So just because I know more than somebody else or I, I'm, I'm, I'm a special case, I am not the one that makes the law. The law is made by the legitimate authority, the legislature or the king or whoever has the proper authority in a given political society, the one that's responsible. So therefore, you don't have to observe whatever opinions of or anybody else except the known opinion which is published and made known by the uh, by the lawgiver. So the law is an ordination of reason for the common good by the proper authority. And remember, the proper authority means whatever the legitimate form of government is. It could be any kind of different kind of form, but whatever it is, the one where you're driving the car, say, that's the authority that decides what are the limits, what are the speed limits. And the last thing is promulgated. Now, what does promulgated mean? Promulgated means, literally, that the law must be made known to us. 
So if I don't know what the law is, then I'm not obviously obliged to it. So that the law, therefore, is the relationship. It's the it's when the lawgiver uses his reason. He thinks it's reasonable that you drive at this particular speed, and that it's intended to inform my reason, and I am supposed to drive because I understand the reason. But I also understand that the reason is 25 miles an hour, not 30 or 30 or 50, because there is a reason for it. I may not see that reason, or I may, or I may see the reason. The more reasonable I see it, the better I am. So the law doesn't want us just to be uh, blindly following the law. It wants us to be uh, observing the law because we understand it. And therefore, we don't have to... So if your only reason that you... Uh, that somebody is driving 25 miles an hour because he's afraid of getting shot or afraid of getting arrested, he's a dangerous man because that means he'll, 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 the minute he thinks he's not being watched or he's not going to be penalized, then he'll be driving too fast. So that the definition of law is the ordination of reason by the, uh, for the common good by the proper authority and promulgated. So you should know those reasons. So that if you read Article 1, you'll see that each four sections is discussed and then he comes to the end and said, but this is the definition of all laws. <clears throat> well, in the next question, question 91, he asked the question, how many different kinds of laws are there? Now, this is a very important question. So he says, there, are, there is an eternal law, there is a natural law, there is a divine law, there is a human law, and there is a, what he calls the law of fomites, or the law of disorder. Now, this is the general question, question 91, and then he will come back in question um, in the question 93 and following to uh, explain more fully each of these kinds of laws. So the first one, as I mentioned before in the first reading, that that the that the um, eternal law is the understanding in the mind of the creator about the order of things. Now it's tricky to understand this. The next one, the human law. The human law is the divine law as it exists outside of God in the things themselves. So that, uh, take for example, of what is it to be a human being? So what it is to be a human being is not something that human beings figured out by themselves. They're all human beings already. Let's say they were created to be human beings, and therefore the intelligibility of what they are or anything is is already in the thing itself, and therefore it has a certain intelligibility to it, which can be manifested by its order. So if the order of a rabbit, a rabbit does what gravity things, so to speak, and that's how we know what it is. <clears throat> so that the, that the, that the uh, uh, natural law is the divine law insofar as it exists in its variety of different laws, so to speak, different orders, different measures, of different kind of beings in the universe. The next question in, that he asked then is, what is the a human law? Well, the human law is what we discussed in the Simon book. The human law is the law which is made by legislatures or, or parliaments or presidents or governments for the order of a given society. It need not exist this way or that way. So they do one thing in Germany, one thing in France, or one thing in Poland. 
they don't necessarily do all the same thing. They have different driving laws or different fishing laws or all this kind of thing. But all of them are designed to promote and, and protect the common good of that particular uh, people. And then it's promulgated to them so that they understand that we, in our country, observe this law. Now, if a law is contrary to reason, if a law is uh, against reason, as St. Thomas says, it is not a law. So a law has to fulfill these four um, uh, premises in order for it to be a real law. So today we do have, it seems to me, many kinds of, of, of so-called positive laws, which in fact do violate the natural law. And therefore the question is, how do we do it? How do we deal with them? Well, St. Thomas goes into that question a little bit later, which we'll, which we'll discuss. Uh, but but uh, it's important to understand that positive law, civil law, uh, is changeable. Uh, it need not be this way or that way. Thirty, The speed limit could be 35 or 25, whatever it happens to be. But once it's decided, then that's what the law is for this particular purpose. Now, there is one further question, question 91.4, which is a very important question, which asks the question, well, I, I, let, me, let me ask, uh, there is an addition to this, what St. Thomas calls the divine law. The divine law is what we know as revelation, so it would be the Old Testament and the New Testament. So what? So that's different from the, the natural law. So one of the questions is, what is the relationship of the natural law, which we can figure by reason, to the divine positive law, which God gave subsequent to creation. So the Old Testament and the New Testament are conceived of St. Thomas as the, as the law. So the Old Testament is a law book. The New Testament is not so much a law book, but it is a, a law in the sense that it's a measure of things. Now, St. Thomas asked the question, question 91.4, about, about whether it was necessary or useful for any reason, for God, in addition to the natural law and, and the human law, the eternal law, to have uh, a positive law. Um, and the positive law is basically the life of Christ, the, the life of the Old Testament, which he, which he gave us for a higher purpose. So St. Thomas says, yes, there are, there are reasons why, there are four reasons, basically, why uh, it might be reasonable for God to give us a more clear law. He says the first one is that we that we want to, that we can figure it out by reason that we want to be happy and that there's some order of things, but it's not clear to us what God is like. So St. Thomas said it's it's helpful to us if God tells us more clearly as he does in Scripture what what he is like. And uh, furthermore, he says that uh, uh, we can figure out certain things by reason, but but it is helpful to us to have things like the Ten Commandments, uh, which are in the Old Testament, which is Revelation in the Old Testament, and mentioned in the New Testament, that these are more particular ways so we understand what it means to be a human being and to act properly. So thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not uh, steal, and so forth, are, are commandments which clarify things we could figure out by ourselves. Aristotle, for example, in the Ethics, would understand these things perfectly well about thievery and about uh, adultery, about all these kind of violations of the law. But when they have them put down as the law, uh, it makes it more clear, St. Thomas says. Um, in addition to that, 
he says that the law that the law of the civil law can only command our external actions so it can only say uh, don't do it. it doesn't tell us uh, that we should conform our minds to it so if we are say for example in a driving law somebody who doesn't willingly obey the law but only obeys it by coercion uh, uh, then if the coercion isn't present the police aren't present then he doesn't think he has to obey it well that's a dangerous kind of a man so St. Thomas says that the Lord commands us not only not to kill or not to commit adultery or not to steal, but not to think about doing these things. So the divine command can order us to order our own inner soul, which the civil law can't do. If the civil law starts to do that, it, becomes, it tries, to, uh, tries to pretend like it's God then and tries to rule our inner soul over which it has no competency. So this is a very important question to limit the state. And the final uh, issue is the question of rewards and punishments. And uh, St. Thomas says, uh, that following Plato really, that, that um, the, the uh, telling us of the kinds of uh, rewards and punishments that we will receive for observing or not observing the law is a help to us. So the doctrines of heaven and hell are helps to us in observing the law. So that's what St. Thomas does in, in question, uh, question 91. And now, and, and now I want to go on and then continue with the other part. So he said, oh, so let me say something too about natural law furthermore. Question 94. Uh, this is a vast topic. Uh, uh, once in a while I'll do uh, uh, a course on this. Um, uh, th th there's a vast bibliography on this topic. Um, <clears throat> some very good books on this. Uh, one of the best one is Professor Heinrich Raman's book called The Natural Law. A very good book. Uh, Raman was a German. He was my own professor. And there is a, an inexpensive edition of this published by Liberty Fund. Now, question 94 uh, is on the natural law. is divided into six articles. St. Thomas asks first whether the natural law is a habit. That is, is it acquired? He thinks not. The natural law uh, refers to uh, precepts uh, embodying, uh, embodying them, uh, not to the way by which they are embodied. <clears throat> he then number two wants to know whether the natural law uh, contains several precepts or only one. He distinguishes. The basic natural law principle for man is to act reasonably in all cases. But we also need to uh, make clear what in this, uh, these circumstances it means to be reasonable. And when spelled out, uh, there are several uh, principles. If we uh, look at the Ten Commandments, as I mentioned, uh, as an example of certain natural uh, uh, positions, uh, then each commandment states what it means to be reasonable. It's reasonable not to steal, uh, not to uh, blaspheme, and so forth. Uh, the French uh, philosopher Jacques Maritain uh, has written 
extensively on natural law. And he says that in his book called Man and the State, which is a very good book, uh, it has the first section on the natural law. That the natural law is uh, uh, the normality or the normalcy of functioning of something. So, what is the natural law of the saw, for example? It is to cut wood or metal. Uh, a wood saw uh, does not uh, cut metal. So, the natural law of a saw is to do what it is intended to do. All things have their own proper functioning. And what is the proper functioning of man? It is, as Aristotle has put it, to act reasonably in all affairs. Uh, this circum uh, the circumstance of what is reasonable can change. Uh, if you uh, use a saw uh, to brush your teeth, uh, it is not uh, acting normally uh, for what it is, if you can imagine that. This is where St. Thomas talks about the first principles of theoretic and practical reason. The first principles of a thing are where it starts, what cannot be denied without contradiction. In speculative affairs, as they recall Simon, the things that cannot be otherwise, uh, the first principle is the principle of contradiction. A thing cannot be and not be at the same time, in the same way, in the same circumstances. And the first principles of the practical reason, uh, when we are acting and not just knowing, is the good is to be done and evil is to be avoided. All else flows from these principles. That is, every action that is uh, practical intellect, coming out of everything we do or make, is considered under the question of whether it is good or evil. We call uh, Book 7 of Aristotle's uh, Ethics on the question of uh, how is it that we do wrong and right. Notice St. Thomas, what he says, every agent acts for an end under the aspect of the good. We cannot do something evil unless we do something good at the same time. But evil is the lack or, of order uh, that we put into a thing. So you recall what we said about Genesis. So evil is when we fail to put order in something, so it lacks what should be there. St. Thomas next uh, points out that we have natural inclinations. We have an inclination to exist, to continue the race, and to tell the truth, and to live in society. These are natural things that we tend to do by our very nature. Whatever belongs to these uh, intentions belongs to the natural law uh, as an explanation of what it means uh, to do good and to avoid evil. Thus, there is one precept with several aspects of the same precept. What is the precept? It is what we are commanded to do specifically in this case. The third question is whether 
all acts of virtue are prescribed by the natural law. St. Thomas always precedes that by distinguishing in one sense yes and in another sense no. There is in every man a natural inclination to act according to reason, and this is to act uh, according to virtue. This question reflects the uh, uh, legal virtues of Aristotle, uh, wherein all uh, virtue can be uh, sustained in the law. So I remember that the law can command the act of every virtue. The specific acts of virtue are not commanded by the natural law, which only tells us to do good and avoid evil. But it is also natural law to want to specify what is the good or evil in concrete. So we want to know more specifically what we should or shouldn't do. And the fourth question is whether the natural law is the same for all men. What are the implications if, if it is not? Basically, that we would belong to a different race uh, as our natural laws differed. So if there were a natural law for part of the human race, which is not the same for the other, then we wouldn't have any universal uh, contact with each other. St. Thomas does not deny the civil or positive law will vary. He says it will vary from place to place and time to time. And this is what civil or positive law is, which is the next question. And St. Thomas thinks that the several principles are known by all. The general principles are known by all. But there can be uh, confusion or can be on uh, practical applications things that still need to be clarified. The fifth question is whether the natural law can be changed. Aquinas distinguishes. The purpose of the mind is to distinguish to say of a thing, uh, uh, this thing, that it is not that thing. So if I say this thing is not that thing, I'm distinguishing. The natural law can state, uh, can be added to. That is, if the natural law says that all crimes should be punished, uh, there can be various ways to do that. But the first principle of the natural law cannot be uh, uh, eradicated or gotten rid of. And the sixth question is whether the natural law can be abolished in the hearts of men. If it can be, you can be whatever you desire to be. Again, uh, St. Thomas thinks that some of the secondary principles uh, can from time to time be abolished but not the first principle, not the principle of do good and avoid evil. Question 95 is about human law. That is, in addition to natural and divine law, do we need human law or positive law or civil law? He thinks that we do. Uh, again, we call Simon. The general principles need to be specified, made more clear, 
and certain. This is the task of the legislator and the lawgiver. The question based on Isidore of Seville, an early uh, canon lawyer and historian, the questions have to do uh, with the form of law. One notes especially uh, the uh, notion of just gentium or the law of nations, question 95.4, and, and the answer to the first question. This is the international law question. St. Thomas thinks that nations are bound uh, to the basic principle of law and reason, even if they are not under the same jurisdiction. So therefore, it is not possible for there to be one state in which you have murder to be a, a good thing and another state in which it could be a bad thing. It's always a bad thing in all states. Question 96 has to do with the power of the human law. The particular note in Article 2 about whether human law should be repress, should repress all vices. So he asked the question, should the human law repress all But you think, from the first thing, yes. St. Thomas is cautious there. This goes back to question 91.4, where St. Thomas points out that the civil law cannot command the internal acts from which all uh, evil actions proceed. That is, all murders, for example, come, on, uh, come from thinking about doing it. The civil law can only deal with external, not internal acts. However, God can command internal acts. Thou shalt not even think about murder, and so forth. Here, the question is uh, whether the civil law should forbid all vices. And St. Thomas says, no. And why does he say that? St. Thomas says that uh, the, normal, the normal run of men uh, cannot be expected to be everywhere uh, virtuous, completely virtuous. The law is directed to the generality of men. It's very important. The law is generated to the generality of men. Uh, what most men can or ought to avoid, especially for civil uh, protection. So murder, theft, and so forth are, uh, are, are prohibited by law. But many other things are not forbidden by the law, even if they are wrong, uh, from the viewpoint of the virtuous man. Now, human law is framed for the number, a number of human beings, the majority of whom are not perfect in virtue. Wherefore, this is St. Thomas now, wherefore human laws do not forbid all vices from which virtuous uh, can abstain, but only the most uh, grievous vices from which it is possible for the majority uh, to abstain, and chiefly those that are in the uh, to the hurt of others, uh, without the prohibition of which human society could not be maintained. Thus, human law prohibits murder, theft, and such like. The end of the quote. 
St. Thomas in the second objection adds uh, a very important observation. He says, quote, the purpose of law, of human law, is to lead men to virtue, not suddenly, but gradually. Wherefore, it does not lay upon the multitude of imperfect men the burden of those who are already virtuous, that is, that they should abstain from all evil. So, there was a certain prudence and gradualness and carefulness about how to achieve an end. Uh, and if you try to do it all of a sudden, St. Thomas thinks you won't, you may just make things worse. So notice the realism of Aquinas here, not unlike Augustine. The third article asks the opposite question, whether human law should prescribe uh, all virtues. Aquinas answers, on the same principle as on the vices. No, it should not. The fourth uh, article is very famous. Whether human law binds a man in conscience. Human law, not. The law that is made by the legislature. That is, can we sin or commit a serious moral fault by not observing the positive law? Aquinas says that they, uh, they can and do bind us if the law is serious and properly formed according to uh, the definition in Article 90 that we saw. So if it's, a, if it's the true law and it's serious, then it does bind us. Here he also brings up the famous question of the unjust law in a citation from Augustine. Unjust laws do not bind in conscience. A law is unjust if any one of its four elements uh, is incorrect or is in um, uh, disorder about a serious matter, except perhaps in order to avoid something worse or some disturbance for which cause a man uh, should even yield his right, he says. <clears throat> the fifth article asks if all are subject to the law. Uh, this is an interesting question also. Aquinas and Aquinas's answer is that the virtuous are not subject to the coercive aspect of the law because they observe the law following their own reason. That is, they can see why the law should be observed. That is to say, because it's reasonable. So therefore, the perfection of the law, everybody will observe the law, not because they fear punishment, but because they understand the purpose of the law, which is just, if it is just. Question 97 asks the, about change of law. The first article asks if a law can be changed in any way. He says uh, that, of course, it can be changed if something better is seen uh, to be necessary. The second article asks whether the human law must be changed if something better uh, comes about. Here he says basically no. Why? <clears throat> because any change of a law is also a burden 
uh, as the law intends us to acquire habits of observation. It may be better not to change everything uh, whenever something better comes up, unless there is a pressing reason to do so. To a certain extent, the mere change of a law is of itself a uh, prejudicial to the common good because custom uh, avails much uh, for the observation of the law. So we're used to observing the law. When you see a law change, you, you, you didn't know it changed, you cause all kinds of difficulties. When a law is changed, the uh, hindering power of the law is diminished uh, insofar as custom is uh, abolished. If the law is constantly being changed, no one knows what it is or if it is worthwhile. The third question asks whether custom can make or change the law. Custom is when people do something over a long period of time, and Aquinas uh, takes the uh, as equivalent to, takes this as equivalent to legislation uh, by ordinary people. So you have heard of the expression, custom is the best interpreter of the law. The law cannot cover everything, but custom can give rise to law uh, uh, or its uh, equivalent. The final question in this section has to do with dispensation from the law. Simply put, the maker of the law can dispense of from the law. Questions 98 to 108, which are not in, usually in this handbook that we use of, of the treatise on the law, uh, are about the old law and the new law. Some very beautiful things in here. It is interesting that Aquinas can see uh, uh, the relevance in terms of law. Of course, uh, the Hebrew Bible and the Quran are themselves uh, considered primarily as books of law. The New Testament is another kind of law, uh, the law of charity and uh, grace. Uh, generally, the precepts of Revelation either parallel or are addressed by what can be known by reason. Question 94 4 asks the question of the sufficiency of reason to deal with all aspects of the human good, uh, especially uh, the last end, which is known only vaguely by reason. This would seem to indicate uh, that the natural law itself points beyond itself. The last question of question 914 uh, asks about the rewards and punishment, something uh, that we see in Plato. Basically, it suggests that within human life, not all vices are punished, nor all virtues are rewarded by either the state or society. This would seem to argue to the natural need for uh, eternal uh, rewards and punishment. I have argued this uh, point 
in uh, chapters on uh, evil and hell in uh, my book called the, the on the limits of political philosophy and the politics of heaven and hell and so this will uh, end my uh, general discussion on the treatise on law so that short trees about 100 pages that you have worthwhile reading and paying careful attention to both the structure and the argument and the content of the natural law and of law in general and the different kinds of law as St. Thomas has developed them. So the end of our discussion of St. Thomas. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.